Honestly, I can't remember that happening any time in the last 10 years. So just a little extra bonus here this morning for you. And um, we should have just watched that video again. What do you think? That would have been good. Um, Certainly the star of the show. Um, Let's talk about this. We're going to talk about the family. And uh, there simply has never been a time in history when the family has not been under attack and in peril. There's never been a time in history where that hasn't been true. And I realize that today, uh, Christian commentators and writers and preachers, they make a big deal about how uh, bad it is for the family uh, in our day. So they cite a pile of things. Let me uh, read some of these to you. They cite uh, gay marriage and, uh, and, and uh, high divorce rates and children born into single parent families and fatherlessness in the home and common law relationships. These are all cited as evidences uh, that the family is in such a bad state that it's uh, literally on the precipice of falling over the cliff and being wiped out in our day. And I admit The stats look pretty alarming. Uh, The stories are devastating. The real life messes that we're facing right here, even in this, our own church and, and in our city, they're real. They're daunting. I admit all of that. But there's never been a time in history when the family has not been in this situation. We just think it's worse because we're living this day. We're living in it right now. I mean, you think about it. It was sibling rivalry in a family that led to the first ever murder. And that was the first family ever. The first dysfunctional family was the first family. The whole deal with, hey, they have such a perfect family. It's such an ideal family situation. Listen, that was over in Genesis chapter 4. And the rest of it has just simply been a mess. Every day, every week, every month, every year, decade after decade, century after century, after millennia and millennia. Listen, to the day we find ourselves in, the, the family has been under attack and in trouble. Family has always been subject to the effects of adultery, of incest, of polygamy, of hatred, of feminism, of overbearing authoritarian fathers, of harsh and cruel discipline. It's always, always, always been the case for families. It's never been anything other than this. It just seems more desperate to us. But the family's always been in a bad way. That's why we need this. That's why we need to press into God's word to hear what he has to say to us about the family. We start this series and I want to remind you of one comforting truth because it... After starting with such a great video that's so encouraging and lifted our spirits and I've just beaten that down hard for the last couple of minutes... We need to remember one very reassuring truth, and that is that God created the family. God created the family. It's not going anywhere. And he's given us some very real truths that can help us live in a blessed place in our families, even in the midst of a world that makes that very difficult. And so we have hope. There is hope for us. We can have the kind of family that God wants us to have. It's never going to be perfect. 
Go ahead and tell the person beside you, our family will never be perfect. Your family will never be perfect. Maybe some of you feel that's more true for the person beside you or for your family than for the other, but, but listen, it may never be perfect, but we can have the kind of family that God wants us to have. We can have the kind of family that allows his blessing to flow to us. If only we'll listen to what he has to say to us. We can press in during this series, seven weeks we're going to spend on this, to hear the wisdom that God has for us in his word. And so uh, this is an introduction that's kind of setting up the whole thing. It's setting up our whole series. But um, for the next seven weeks, I'm just going to tell you, it's a family thing for the next seven weeks. It's a family thing. And it's, it's going to be all about Proverbs that we need to hear. That's where we're going to be spending our time in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs we need to hear and seven priorities that we need to make as families. So if you're up for that journey, make a pledge right now to yourself. We're going to be here for all seven weeks. We're going to press in to hear what God has to say to us for our families. And uh, we're going to seek the wisdom he has for us. And we're going to seek to live the kind of life that he would have us live. Amen? Make that pledge. Why don't you just go ahead and bow your heads with me right now. We're going to pray and commit uh, this time uh, to the Lord. Father, I would just say very, very humbly uh, that uh, we all need this. Um, Father, there's not a family here that isn't dysfunctional in some way. Uh, certainly, God, there might be degrees of that. Uh, but, Father, we all need help. We all need wisdom. I save us from ourselves and thinking that we have this all put together in a way that uh, works for us. Uh, God, we need you. We need your wisdom. Help us to hear what you have to say to us, to understand it, to believe it, and to put it into practice in our lives, Father. It has to be all four of those. And so, God, do that powerful work in our midst here today. Do something that we can't do for ourselves. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, that's the intro to the series for the seven weeks. But as we consider all of the priorities that we could possibly make and where we might start, I would just suggest to you that it's so important to us as a church and what we value so highly that we actually start with a vertical focus. So much of what we could talk about in a family, how to be a better husband, how to be a better father, how I could be a better mother, how I could be a better uh, wife, how we could be better kids, how that all interplays with one another. So much of it is going to sound so horizontal as we're dealing with all of these relationships with one another in the home. But unless we start with a vertical focus, completely giving our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ, making him the center of our home, uh, then we're never going to get any of this. And so priority number one needs to be the exaltation of Jesus Christ in our homes. And so we're going to start with this. It's a family thing to worship together. It's a family thing to worship together. So ask this question, four questions and then a pledge is what we're looking at today. Ask this question, does my family really know God? My family. You're just thinking about yourself right now. Don't think about the family beside you. Don't think of anyone else's family. You just think about your family. Does my family really know God? Now, chapter, uh, chapter 30, this is Proverbs chapter 30. Hopefully you've already turned there. Uh, Proverbs chapter 30. We're not going to work through every single verse of Proverbs 30, but we're going to look at the words of this man named Agur, the son of Jekai, uh, the oracle. Uh, so Agur was a man who had spent his life uh, pursuing wisdom, pursuing knowledge. And uh, let me read the first four verses and we'll start breaking this down. 
The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not under the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One who has ascended to heaven and come down, who has gathered the wind in his fists, who has wrapped up the waters in a garment, who has established all the ends of the earth. What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. This man, Agur, he's unknown to us except for this very passage. We don't really know much about him, but he tells us at least a little bit. And he starts out by kind of confessing his own dilemma, the problem that he's having in his life. He had been searching for a good way to live. He had been searching for values, a a way to pursue life. And the search had left him. Look in verse 1, the latter part of verse 1, he says, I'm weary of it. I'm weary. I'm worn out. I need to pause right there. If you're carrying an ESV Bible, just raise your hand right now. Say, I'm carrying an ESV. All right? A lot of you, and that's the one that I teach from. But some of you are carrying an NIV right now. Raise your hand if you're carrying an NIV. Or if you're carrying a New King James Version, raise your hand. Or a New American Standard Version. You're, you're reading this and going, what is he reading? Uh, be, True? You were like, am I even in the right passage right now? Because the verse sounds so different. And in English, it sounds so completely different. And it looks like he's listed three names and possibly, or two names there and repeated one. And they think that maybe that was his son's. But literally in English, it looks so different. But in the original language, in the Hebrew, it really is just a way of gathering the letters together. And if you separated it quite differently, it sounds like the way I just read it here. So if you're reading in the NIV or one of these other translations, literally, it sounds so different. In the original language, it's all the same letters, just grouped differently. And, and so um, most commentators would say that the way the ESV has taken this would be the better way to read it, and it fits so well with the context. He's frustrated with this pursuit that he has. It's led him nowhere, and so he's literally saying, I'm weary, O God. I'm weary and worn out of pursuing my own way of doing this. Despite all the searching that he's done, he's no further along. And he calls himself stupid. I love the ESV, okay? (laughs) Because it puts the word stupid. How many kids in the room not allowed to use the word stupid at home? Really? Just a few? How many parents have this rule for your kids? You're not allowed to say the word stupid. Okay, well, I'm just going to say to the kids right now, and most of you are grateful if your parents or your kids are down the hall and harvest kids right now, because I'm going to tell you, mom and dad, this is a Bible word. I ought to be able to use Bible words. Amen? Do we not want to live out the word of God? Amen? Amen. Parents? Stupid's a Bible word. It's a family series. I'm giving you some good advice here. The word stupid is not off limits unless you're using it for your brother and sister. Not allowed. Not, Not allowed. He says, I'm stupid. I'm without understanding. I have no wisdom. He feels at the end of his search like he's gotten nowhere. That he still doesn't really know anything. And so he confesses further in verse 3. And this is so critical. He says, I have no knowledge of the Holy One. And we begin to get down to the core of the issue for Agur. And the core of the issue for most of us. 
In fact, for all of us at one time in our life, you see, he doesn't know God. He doesn't know him. He doesn't have a relationship with, with, with the uh, God of the universe. Doesn't that he, it's, it's not that he doesn't know that there is a God. It's not that. And uh, we've already established in previous weeks that most Canadians believe that there is a God. It's, it's not that. It's not that he doesn't even know things about God. Agur knows a lot about God, and, and, and we know a lot about God. We could list a lot of details about him, come up with information. It, it's, it's not that. It's that he doesn't know him. He doesn't have any relationship with him. He, he's not intimately connected with the Lord. There's no experience of God. When it talks about knowledge of the Holy One, this isn't just intellectual. It's not just factual. It's experiential. I know Him. I have a relationship with Him. It's, it's the deepest kind of knowledge because when you know God in this way, when you know Him beyond the intellectual, beyond the facts, it changes everything. And some of you are literally here. Maybe, maybe you're part of a family that's got a lot, of, a lot of problems. Maybe like for you, dysfunctional doesn't even begin to describe it. Maybe some of you, you're starting out. You're uh, poised to get married. You, you're, you're, your life is changing. Maybe you're just into a marriage and things have been great so far. But, but you're pressing in. You need to know something here. There's, there's information that you want to gather for yourself. And I'm, I'm trying to plead with you right now from the words of this sage, this man in Proverbs 30, to say that it goes beyond just getting some facts. You have to know God. You have to have a relationship with him. It, it's going to change everything. Whatever we need to know to help us live for him starts with a real, intimate, growing, vibrant relationship with the God of the universe. And, and do you have that? In fact, to grasp the whole point of why the book of Proverbs exists, you have to go back to understand what the author intended, what King Solomon intended by putting this book together. Because we could look at it and it just looks like a bunch of wise sayings. It's just common sense. If we just lived this out, our life would be better. The purpose for Proverbs is enshrined in two key verses, both of them saying essentially the same thing. And you know the verse if you know anything about the Bible. Proverbs 1.7, write down the reference. Proverbs 1.7 and Proverbs 9.10 say almost exactly the same thing. It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the core of it. It's not just about getting some wise sayings that are going to help me live my life. It's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord speaks to that that word means reverence and awe. In other words, I worship him. I know him. I've not only heard what I need to hear, but I believe it and, and I'm pressing into it. I'm confessing my own inadequacy around this and I'm leaning in to hear what the Lord has to say to me. It's worship flowing from knowledge and intimacy with him. 
and in our families, unless we're attributing all things to God that are due him and believe in him by faith, we miss the power of the wisdom he offers us. We have to have this wisdom. First, we have to have belief and faith. Now look at verse 4 where he asks this series of rhetorical questions to point out how inadequate he is and who God really is. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? The answer to the question, not me. I haven't done that. Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Can I do that? Answer, no, I cannot. Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? It certainly isn't me. Who has established all the ends of the earth? I didn't do that. What is his name and what is his son's name? It's not me. I'm not putting my name on the blank. You're not putting your name on the blank. None of us have done these things. It's someone else. Surely you know who it is. Surely you know. I I read this passage and like so many of us that are reading it from this New Testament, I love Jesus perspective. You read back on it and you go, man, this is pointing to Jesus. A thousand years before he ever showed up on earth, uh, the author could not possibly have known that what he was writing was messianic, that it was prophetic in any way, and yet it points to Jesus Christ. So clearly, we, we have to have a relationship with him. We have to confess Our sin, the separation between us and God, we have to confess that we need this wisdom. We have to get our eyes on him. We need a relationship with him if there's to be any hope for us, any hope for our families. Everything good comes from him. Any turnaround in our family has to come from him. Any wisdom that we would enjoy that would allow us hope and grace and love, it all has to come from him. And we have to acknowledge that as families. We have to acknowledge it as individuals. We need him. We need to know him. Now, some of you, like Agur, are weary. You're worn out. Because you've been spending your life doing it your way, trying to find... Uh, your own method of turning your family around and making it work. And, and it's not. If you would be honest today, you would say, I'm weary of doing it my way. I'm worn out in the face of how my family is turning out. Well, you can do like this man is doing. and Turn your life over to God. Just admit that you don't have it. You don't have what it takes to make this thing work. And so... Worship him. Turn your life over to him. It's a family thing to worship together. And it starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ. Call out to him in faith. And if you do, or if you've done that already, then we can get to the second question. You ready for it? All right. You ready for it? All right. Are we acting on the truth of his word? I mean, if we believe in him, if we have this relationship with him, then we're going to want to act on the things that he's telling us to act on. 
Are we acting on the truth of his word? Verse 5 now says, and I love this. This is highlighted in my Bible. You might want to have it highlighted in yours. Every word of God proves true. I'll say it again. You think about an appropriate response to that line, all right? Because I'm thinking there should be some spontaneous, I believe that kind of response. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Then this warning, do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Man, it's tough being a preacher. I don't like verse 6 at all. Right? You know what I'm saying? We don't want to add to his words. That's a great warning. But verse 5 first, every word of God proves true. Uh, This book has all the wisdom you need for all matters of life and godliness. Everything you need. There's nothing left out. If we feel beaten down, if we feel defeated, if we feel discouraged in any way, if we're lost, if we're empty inside, if we feel a void, God's word can fill that. The knowledge and the wisdom that he gives us through the pages of this book, it's, it's all we need. If your life doesn't have purpose, if it doesn't have meaning for you, if you're struggling with knowing who you are and having an identity in this world and knowing what your purpose is, this book answers the question. It gives us everything we need, every word of God, every word of God proves true. In fact, that word proves true. Two words there in the original language means refined by fire. It's forged in the furnace. It's gone through the smelting process. And what has come out is free of any dross, any any kind of impurities. This is completely purified. It is the word of God to us. And so we need to act on it. But in order to act on it, what do you need to do? You need to read it, right? You need to read it. It's, it's not, this isn't like the wedding Bible, the big massive white wedding Bible you got from the church. We don't give those out. Those are like insane. And we got one from the church. We got married in, big old fat King James version, crazy pictures in it. No one ever used it, sat underneath our table. Useless. Wedding Bible. I know some of you have it and I've offended you and that's all right. I don't care really that much. We got rid of our big old fat wedding Bible. We give out Bibles people can actually use uh, when people get married here, right? That's the kind of Bible we want to give out. And, and um, it's not just, not, not just like the closed book. I mean, I remember growing up in our home and my mom always, my mom had a Bible beside her. She had this sense of God, but had no relationship with God. But she had a Bible, an old King James version, used to sit beside on her nightstand all the time. It never moved. Except on Saturdays when she dusted. That's it. That's the only time. It was before she knew Jesus, before any of us knew Jesus in our home. But it was there. And I grew up with this sense of, man, if you just had a Bible with you, that was enough. I remember being in Boy Scouts and, and always I would, I would put my whole pack together for a weekend excursion. And I'd pack in all the stuff I needed, my sleeping bag and my clothes and my knife. I would get all of that. And then I'd get this little New Testament that my grandmother had bought me. And I would tuck that in the top right-hand pocket. I would take that with me on every trip. Never opened it. It was like some freaking spiritual uh, good luck charm. That's what it was to me. And it's not, is that doing anybody any good at all? Is it? Is it? It's not doing anybody any good at all. It's not enough that you own the book. That's not enough. 
is it? You've got to get it open. You've got, to, you've got to read the book. You have to hear the book being read and being preached. You have to believe it. And then it's going to take you from mere understanding to a deep assurance that the one who is speaking to you is caring for you and creating a shield about your life. But notice there's a decision that you need to make. The passage speaks to this. You see, God's not forcing anybody to act upon his word. The reason why things are so messed up in this world is because God has given us a choice. It's not because God is somehow allowing all of this to go on. God's giving you a choice in all of this. Look at the verse again, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to everyone. No, not to everyone. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him to those who have a relationship with him, to those who are hearing his word and acting upon it, believing it for life change. He's a shield to those. And, and so have you made that decision? Are you, are you acting upon the word of God that you're hearing? You're all going to face the choice here today. You're going to hear the word of God. You are hearing the word of God. You all face a choice as you leave this place. That was a nice sermon. End of story. That's it. It just comes to an end right there. You just click it off. It was a fun experience while it lasted, but it's not going to make any difference in my life. Or you can leave from this place having internalized some things and believed some things and made some decisions and said, on the basis of what I heard the preacher say today, things are changing. We all need to make that decision for ourselves whether we're going to act upon it, whether we're going to actually be saved by him and see the transformation that comes as a result of the salvation that he has in our life. And I can't add anything to this. I, I can't take anything away from it. That's what verse 6 is about. So it's not like, oh, that was a good word. If I'm going to go home and read some other stuff and add a little bit to it, or I'm going to take bits and pieces of what he said, but I don't believe all of it. I'm, I'm just going to take a little bit, but not, that, not too much. And I'm just, listen, verse 6 kind of takes care of that, don't you think? No adding, no taking away. It's the word of God. It's all or nothing when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And are you willing to sign up for that? A relationship with him, to worship him, and to be all about his word. It's entirely sufficient for anything and everything that you'll ever face in your life. So give your life to him in its entirety. You see, the knowledge of God and reverence for God are bound together. Did you hear that? The knowledge of God and reverence for God are bound together. And our ability to grasp the truth is wholly dependent on our worship of Jesus Christ. We're only going to grasp these truths if we surrender our lives entirely to him. Question three. Ask this. Are we seeing the obstacles that are in the way to what I just said? The obstacles that are in the way of us worshiping Christ and obeying his word. And from verses 7 through 17, again, we're not going to look at every part of this, but it's a prayerful plea to God to save him from himself. The big opponent here, the big obstacle that he's facing, you ready for this? Is his own pride. It's himself. Now, I'd just like to do a little exercise here. I think we've done this before. 
just point right now, just because I want you to be real sure that you get this, point to the biggest obstacle to the worship of Jesus Christ and the obedience to his word. Just point to that. And if any of you are pointing to anything other than yourself, you got it wrong, right? You're pointing, this is the biggest obstacle. I'm the biggest problem. Don't be pointing at your spouse. Don't blame your parents. Don't point at your spouse. Don't blame your parents. Don't blame another church that you've been part of. Don't don't blame anybody else. You stand before Jesus Christ someday. You. You're not taking a lawyer with you. You're not bringing your buddies along for moral support. And no one else is going to be standing there with you. Just you and Jesus sorting it out. Personal responsibility. Amen? Amen. Half-hearted. Amen. Personal responsibility. Amen? Amen? That's what I thought. Personal responsibility. Are we seeing the obstacles in the way, namely myself? Check it out. A girl knows, as we should, that there are so many temptations, often subtle, that serve to undermine the integrity of our life in Jesus Christ and how that plays out then in our families, in our homes. They're subtle influences, but they destroy. And his self-awareness is something we all need. He's very self-aware. He's being very transparent, very vulnerable, very authentic in this moment about the obstacles that he's facing. Are you being as transparent? Do you have people in your life that you can open up to? Are you, first of all, opening up to the Lord about these things? But are you opening up to people in your small group and close friends that you have? Have you and your your spouse, have you talked about these things? These are the things that are keeping us from really rocking it for Jesus in our home. Listen, unless we're getting to that place, unless we have that high level of self-awareness, then we're going to miss this. Unless you're willing to admit a few things about yourself, about your struggles, your temptations, about your vulnerability in this world, about your sin, then the help that the Lord is providing you is really going to elude you. Are we seeing the obstacles that are in our way? It's only pride that prevents us from seeing this. And unless we get humble and get low before the Lord and humbly accept our own frailty and God's sufficiency, then we're going to come up short. So take a look here, verse 7. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. This is a desperate plea and a prayer. And he says this, two things that he's requesting of the Lord. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. This isn't actually the first thing. This is kind of like another aside or a parenthesis that he's saying. He says, I don't want to deceive myself in asking for these two things. I don't want to be caught in a lie here. I don't want to try to trick myself or trick you as if that were even possible. I want to be real honest here about this. That's what he's saying. And then he gives the two requests. It's right in the next line. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Request number one, I don't want to be poor. Yeah, like everybody wants to pray that prayer, right? Because it basically sucks to be poor, all right? We all confess that, right? Everybody willing to pray the I don't want to be poor prayer? Yes? Yeah, for sure we're on that program. You know where the next request is going, right? And not so willing to pray the next one. Um, Give me neither poverty, request number one, nor riches, request number two. I don't want to be rich. Mm. fewer people willing to pray the prayer. 
right? I'd like to have more money. I'd like to have nice things. I'd like to have some comfort in my life. I'd like it to be a little easier, a lot easier, really easy. I'd like it, right? And if we were really honest today, and I'm not going to ask anybody to confess this, we've actually prayed these prayers. I want more, Lord. I think I'm being faithful with what you gave me. Try me out with some more, you know. So this is a tougher prayer. He says, uh, just going on, feed me with the food that is needful for me. Give me what I need, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? I I don't want to be so rich. I don't want to have so much that it just gets to the place in my life where I don't even feel like I need God. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? God? God who? Lest I be poor, I don't want that either, and steal and profane the name of my God, feeling like I have to to support my family, and I start cutting corners, cheating on my taxes, trying to make it a little easier for myself, not reporting income, stealing in whatever way. I don't want to profane the Lord in that way. This is a pretty important prayer that he's putting before the Lord. In essence, what he's saying is, I don't want anything else to get between me and the Lord. In essence, in the context of us talking about worship, he's talking about tearing down two potential idols in his life. The idol of riches and the idol of poverty. i got to tear those down. If I have so much, I create an idol out of that. And I love the things and I love the comfort. And that's where I go to give my adoration. That's the thing that I'm attributing worth to. Look how much I have. Look how good my life is. That becomes the God. That's the temple we go to more often to worship. God becomes a side issue. And then in poverty, you know, poverty is no less an issue with greed, right? I mean, being rich is an issue with greed, but being poor, the thing with the rich is they have it, and so they're greedy about it and complacent with it. The the poor, though, they're not thinking any less about all of this stuff. It's just that they don't have it. And so the idol is just the same. It's still the idol of greed, of possessions. It's just that you don't actually have them in front of you, but you want them and you're obsessed by them. The whole issue of buying lottery tickets and and, and trying to find wealth an easy way, it's, 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 the, it's, it's the perversion of worship. It's, it's an idol put in front of us. If only I could have this, and we spend all our time adoring and worshiping at that idol. This is all about idolatry, and he's praying to have these things torn down in his life. And so, really, the prayer that he's praying is this one. God, don't make me poor. God, don't make me rich. And a prayer maybe you've never thought of praying before. Oh, dear Lord, please make me middle class. Yeah, it does sound funny, right? It does sound funny. God, just, just, just enough. Just enough. That's all I want. I don't want anything to get in the way of my relationship with you. Nothing that would hinder the pursuit of God in my family. And it's interesting to me that the prayer is about money, but it's really representative of everything. 
but we know how much money is such a big thing for us and how it undermines so many families, but it's just representative of anything that can get away, get us away from the Lord. And this needs to be our prayer. Are we seeing the obstacles? Are we willing to confess them? Are we willing to get our pride out of the way? Are we willing to acknowledge our own desperation and weakness? The rest of the verses really speak to all of that and how messed it can really get. So many obstacles. Are you willing to have those removed from your life? To ask God to literally take them away so that he can be the sole focus of your home. And then finally this question. In your family, ask this. Are we truly standing in awe of him? Think about it for your home. Is your home in awe of Jesus Christ? Is it a place where there's a sense of the presence of God? The manifest presence of God. I know God is everywhere, but his presence manifests itself in certain places. People often speak of Sunday morning here that I I just came and I sensed the Lord was here. Well, we know the Lord is everywhere, but the Lord shows up in a special way in the midst of his people. God does something in special places where God's people are pressing into him. And does your home have a sense of the manifest presence of God? Of his power. I mean, is that true of your marriage, of your family? Is there a sense of God being right in the midst of that? Is your marriage a place of worship? Is your family a place of worship? Now, go over to verse 18. He begins to go through this few verses that point to the awesomeness of God. But do you have a sense of this in your home? If you like this passage, if it strikes you, Job 38 and 39 are very similar. But he just says this. I won't read all of this or explain all of it. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. Have you ever just watched a hawk even around our own area? We don't see a lot of eagles, I wouldn't think. But we see hawks every once in a while, especially around the highways. In our backyard, we're just on the edge of the woods and the Ardaugh Bluffs. And there's a hawk that lives right up in the trees. It's very close by. And he's often in our backyard, I hope, killing rodents. Um, and and uh, it's awesome to watch them fly, isn't it? It's like entirely effortless. I don't get it. Just like soaring up there. And, and that's the awesomeness of God. He created that hawk. Get that? You see where this is going? He's, he's creating this sense of awesomeness around God. The way of a serpent on a rock. Serpents are also predators. I love predators that eat rodents. You'll catch that theme as we go along here. I have uh, snakes that live up near my, my compost or up in the top corner of my property that I hope also are dispensing with all of the voles and stuff that good around my garden. And, and, but it's awesome. They live underneath these rocks that I have back there. And just to see them slither, is it, does it puzzle you when you look at a snake and just go, how, how are they getting that done? You think about that? Does, do other people think about that? Because I think about that. I don't get it because I don't understand these things at all. The way of a ship on the high seas. The way of a man with a virgin. I think that's a whole different uh, series. 
that last one. Verse 21, under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up, a slave when he becomes a king, a fool when he's filled with food. These things don't necessarily make sense. An unloved woman when she gets a husband, the earth trembles under that apparently. A maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The answer of people not strong Yet they provide their food in summer. Ants are so elevated throughout the Proverbs for their hard work and their coordination with one another. I totally don't get it. Kick over an anthill. I do it just for kicks sometimes. You know, kick over an anthill and just watch them all go to work. How did they all know? Like, do they have, like, this coordinated text message system that all of a sudden, hey, you know, breach on gate eight, and all of a sudden they're all, like, moving and gathering eggs and moving them to it. Like, how do they even know? Do you wonder about this? I don't know. Goes on. A rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. It goes on and on to speak of all these things that should cause us simply to have awe before our God. To say, I'm not him, but I need him in my life. And is your family reflecting this awe concerning the ways of God in the world? Are you giving him praise for the things that are good in your family? Are you pressing into him in desperation when things are going sideways and say, God, we can't work this out and we know you're the only one who can. He is all-powerful. He's over all things. And if we're going to genuinely worship Christ in our homes, in our families, it has to be grounded in the supremacy and awesomeness of who he is. I love this this, uh, quote from Matt Chandler. It's up on the slide. The root of Christian worship is acknowledging, submitting to, and enjoying the supremacy of God's glory in all things. Is that happening in your family? I hope it is. But practically speaking to moms and dads, to husbands and wives out there, what does it mean when God is supreme over all things? Well, very practically, it means this to moms and dads. It means that you are not the final authority over your children. We kind of think we are. We rear up, we exert our authority, I always told my kids, mom and I are a team, and you're the other team. You like that? Write it down. It's useful. It works. We're, you're the other team, and we're going to win here. And, 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 and we exercise our authority, but hopefully our children also heard that God was in authority. God was supreme in our home. That any authority we had was derived from him. So that our kids are not thinking this is some kind of arbitrary dictatorship, as benevolent as it might seem in our home. This is about God and his parenting over the family. God sets the tone. We make sure that in our marriages, especially when we hit a rough patch, that we never act on emotion. In our marriages, when we hit a rough patch... We never act on emotion. Ever. 
How easy is it to act on emotion on a scale of 1 to 10? How easy is it to act on emotion in the midst of a marriage challenge? 10, 12, 15. Correct. You got it. Thank you for playing along. So easy. Not on emotion. Not on opinion. Here's what I think you should do in your marriage. Oh, my husband and I were having such a tough time. What do you think we should do? I don't care about your opinions. I don't care about my opinions, just so we're being fair here. Not on emotion, not on opinions, but on the authority of God's word, on the truth of his word. We acknowledge that no one has the right to mess with our marriage. No one, not even me. I don't have the right to mess with my marriage. Cheryl doesn't have the right to mess with it. It's God is in the midst of this. We committed our way to him. We said our vows before him. No one messes with this marriage. The truth of his word. We're standing in awe of his supremacy in the midst of our family. God is the one who calls the shots. His word informs every decision. You might be sitting here, maybe even as a single adult, and you're going, well, this doesn't even really all apply to me. And can I share with you just a little bit of math right now? Can I? Yes? All right. How many people in the Hubner family? Five? Five? Wrong. Wrong. No, no, you only get one chance at it, Heather. <laughs> Let's see if the Bamacolis picked up on this. How many people in the Bamacoli family? Six. Six, see? See how they learn? They're so, so learned. They have three kids. I see. A mom and a dad, that's two. Three kids is five, but there's six in the family. Yeah, the Lord. Right? So if you're a single adult going in, I don't really have a family yet. I'm not really a family. You're a family of one. But in fact, you're a family of how many? It's always the number of people living in the house plus one. You're a family of two if you're a single adult. And all of this applies just as readily. When you're alone in your apartment and, and, and listen, what are you watching on television? And how are you spending your time and money? God's over all of that. You're not independent. There's not a single single adult anywhere in the world who loves Jesus Christ and is autonomous. Being a single adult does not mean you're autonomous. Not if Jesus is Lord of your life. Right? See, the head of our house is not me. I'm not the head of my house. Jesus Christ is the head of my house. If you're a single adult, male or female, listen, you're not the head of your house. Jesus Christ is the head of your house. And so your house, your apartment, wherever you live, that should be a place of awe and worship. A place where the supremacy of Jesus Christ reigns. No one is excluded. Every marriage, a relationship of three. Every single adult, a relationship of two. He is Lord. He is sovereign. And I'm going to stand in awe of who he is. Amen? Four questions. Pretty important ones. Does my family really know God? Are we acting on the truth of his word? Are we uh, standing? Are we seeing the obstacles in the way and standing in awe of who he is? And then this pledge, would you consider making it? Establishing the priority in your family? Would you write this as a statement on your own hearts, on the doorposts of your home? Our family thing is to worship the Lord our God. That's a family thing for us. 
verses 32 through 33, there's really just one line here that I love so much. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, he comes right back to the whole issue of pride and his, the obstacle of himself getting in the way. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself. How many people would just like to confess that right now, that you have been foolish at times and exalting yourself? Just go ahead and confess by raising your hand. Okay, the rest of you are wrong. <laughs> or if you have been devising evil, notice this, I love this, just underline it. Put your hand on your mouth. Put your hand on your mouth. Stop talking. Stop exalting yourself. Stop putting yourself in a place where you're in charge of anything. And surrender to him. Just surrender to Jesus Christ. Stop doing it your way and do it differently. Turn to God's way. Acknowledge him in all things. This is about repentance. This is about not a partial turn, not I just heard some things that I think might be helpful. This is a full turn about, uh, turn about from the way that you've been doing it to the way God wants you to do it. To acknowledge him fully. And you know, as we think about this, as we think about what it means to really stand in awe of God and worship him fully, at least it needs to start in our home and we need to reflect the values of, of God's word in terms of what worship really looks like. And I just want to encourage you as we close um, this particular thought, this first priority, that we would have it firmly in our mind that we are part of one family, that we have created a physical family, and then God has really given us a mystical or spiritual family called the church. If we're genuinely followers of Jesus Christ, we belong to the church. Universal, worldwide church. And then God has given us local expressions of that called the local church. This one happens to be called Harvest Bible Chapel. And Many of you belong to this church or are becoming members of this church. You've tied in and identified with what we're doing. And the worship in all of that, it matters, it counts. And so if we're really intent on elevating worship in our homes and saying that our home is going to be a place of awe before the Lord, having that priority, that we need to make sure that we reflect that for our children and for people around us, that this really is a high priority. And that's why this is so important. So good on you for coming today because this is the thing that needs to be a priority for us. Being together with God's people corporately for worship and then letting that worship spill out into our whole week. And so... There's never a time really in a family if you really want to have awe and worship in your home. There's just never a time where you just kind of wake up on Sunday morning and go, I I just don't think we're going to church today. No decision to be made on Saturday night. In fact, computers all have default settings. And the default setting of a true follower of Christ, listen now, the default setting is we go to church on Sundays. We get together with God's family. And we elevate worship, the worship of Jesus Christ, here together, and then that spills over into our home. We just do that. That's the default setting. And, and the only time that we would deviate from that is, sadly, some people have to work on Sundays. Sometimes there's illness in our homes. Sometimes we are indeed on vacation in a way. Uh, sometimes we're visiting family out of town, and I understand how all of that can happen. But the default setting, every other Sunday, is always, we're here. We're together with God's people and we're firing it up and hopefully we're doing it in such a way that's pretty high impact and you want to be here. 
I should have that desire inside of me if I'm a true follower of Christ. I, I want to be here. We're not getting up on Sunday morning and going, hey, uh, the weather's really nice today. I think we should just head up to Waseca Beach. Let's just go to the beach for the day. Let's beg church. Although we'd never say that, we just conveniently forget and uh, we just go off. I'm grateful for snowy, cold April days and <laughs> Sunday mornings. Eh, weather's not that great. Let's go to church, you know. No, it's got to flow out of us. There's got to be like a love for this and a desire to have it. And when we have the relationship with Christ, and I'm just saying we want to be here. And that reflects the kind of awe, the kind of worship that all of us should really have. And in our homes, it starts here and we fire it up. But then in our homes through the week, is worship music even a part of what you're playing in your home? Are you getting God's word open individually and maybe even together as a family? Are you sharing in God's word? Do you talk about these things back and forth amongst yourselves when you're having discussions about what life is really about it, challenges that you're facing? Does God's word come up? And the pastor said this, and I heard in my small group, and we've been learning this principle, and I read in God's word myself this morning, and are those conversations happening? Do you hear those kinds of words in your family? That's the worship of God. That's a home that's increasingly seeing the awe of Jesus Christ in its midst. So make the pledge, set the priority. Our family thing is to worship the Lord our God. Let's pray. Father, you're um, so amazing. We are in awe of you. There's so much about you that we can't grasp or understand in the slightest. And Father, that's a good thing. We like the transcendence of that, how other you are, how awesome, how powerful, because we so often feel weak and desperate. So God, help us. We, We would just plead for help the way This man has in Proverbs 30, we would confess our own need. Our need of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Our need to turn some things around by listening to your word. God, help us. Help every one of us, no matter where we are in our families. We would just even say, God, we need this. So teach us, grow us. I pray for any in this room who don't yet know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that They would confess that today, this morning. And begin a life of walking with Him and enjoying the wisdom that He has for us in His Word. God, continue to be patient with us. And God, may You be a refuge in the midst of the storms of life. Thank You, Jesus, for hearing this prayer. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.